0: Welcome to Expert Insights. This session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on the 14th of September, 2022. The topic was health and happiness, the impact of exercise on mental health. On the panel we had Associate Professor Simon Rosenborn. Simon is a Scientia Associate Professor at UNSW Sydney and the President of the Australasian Society for Traumatic Stress Studies. Dr. Alexander Svensson, clinical psychologist at the Black Dog Institute, and Caroline Bellinger, our lived experience representative. Chairing the session is Dr. Carol Newell. So
1: welcome everyone to Health and Happiness, the impact of exercise on mental health. Um, I want to give my acknowledgement of country. Um, I acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land um, and pay my respects to elders, both past, present and emerging. And I want to welcome um, any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be um, in our audience today. So welcome everyone. So welcome to our wonderful panel members tonight, and we're so lucky to have them. Um, they're giving up an evening for us. We've got uh, Simon Rosenbaum, Alex Benson, and Caroline be- Bellinger, <laughs> <laughs> I hope I pronounced it properly. Um, and I am uh, Carol Newell, I'm going to be your moderator tonight, I'm a clinical psychologist, and also a uh, facilitator for the Black Dog Institute.
2: And we might start off with um, Caroline. Okay. Awesome. Thanks, Carol. Uh, so essentially, my I have a lived experience of um, mental health, depression, bipolar, um, and twenty about 20 years of addiction that went with that. Uh, I've been sober 13 years. And since then, I went back and did my Bachelor of Social Science in honours. I then became a personal trainer and opened up a small gym. And that was because of the benefits um, exercise had on my own health and sobriety and since then I've got on to do um, performance coaching life coaching in NLP and I've also uh, been a national I've represented Australia in triathlon and surf lifesaving so yeah it sort of went from just going for a run to that.
1: Mm -hmm. amazing right and before this podcast caroline we were talking about you being at base camp of mount Everest, so she really is like getting right into all these (laughs) elite kind of you know activities um we might turn to simon now simon would you like to introduce yourself and just to let you know you're yep coming off mute excellent
3: (laughs) sure
4: um hi carol hi everyone um it's sort of difficult to follow caroline there and i'm going to be more interested in hearing from you tonight i think Um, So my name's Simon, I'm an academic exercise physiologist. Uh, I then, so I studied exercise physiology, I then did my PhD in uh, mostly post-traumatic stress disorder Um, and since then I've been working in various mental health services, so early psychosis services and more recently with refugee and displaced populations looking at how we can utilise physical activity and sport as part of a broader psychosocial and mental health recovery programme.
1: Thanks, Simon. And what about you, Alex?
5: Right. Uh, Yeah, thank you. Uh, Thank you for having me. Um, I guess um, um, my background isn't too too sporty like uh, Caroline and not too scientific in terms of the uh, the, the exercise background. But uh, so I'm a clinical psychologist um, uh, and I also have an interest in decision making. Um, in mental health. So I'm doing a PhD in neuroeconomics or computational psychiatry, as it's also called uh, at Sydney Uni. But uh, my interest in exercise is a little bit more soft in the sense that uh, I've always been a person. I realized recently that um, exercises, since I was very young, uh, starting with swimming and then various uh, sports, and it's filtered into um, partly the way that I Um, practice as well as uh, always keeping an eye out on physical activity, whether people are actually using their bodies as well as their minds in practice. So that's what uh, really attracted me um, to this podcast.
1: Absolutely. Sounds like you've always had it in your life. Um, And so it's just really stayed in with your practice as well. Now, Simon, so you do a lot of research in this area. How did you become interested in this line of research for exercise and well being? What started off because you're not you're not a psychologist background is my understanding, right? Exercise physiology. So how did you start to move into the space of well being combined with exercise?
4: Yeah, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I'm a sort of fake mental health practitioner. Um, yeah. But I think this all to a another aspect as we go along or you know it'll raise the question about well what is a mental health or who Mm. is a mental health professional but that Mm. will hopefully come to that um I fell into this area so just by chance I got offered a job at a at a private hospital mental health hospital Mm. um when I was still studying exercise physiology Mm. um and really I just spent a lot of time working there with people with mostly post-traumatic stress disorder Mm-hmm. Um, and I became really passionate about this whole topic because I was just seeing it every day um, and hearing stories from people about how much how important this was to their recovery. Um, the other thing that I noticed was that the people, yeah, it was great for the people that had the motivation, that had the energy in the hospital to come to the gym. Mm-hmm. But I was always really interested in, well, what about the people that aren't coming? Yeah. And they're the ones that I, that actually I really wanted to to work with and try to figure out how can we 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 develop programs to reach those people.
1: Mm. I mean, the idea of, um, exercise and well-being, like just, you know, improve mood has been around for a really long time, but, um, you know, has, has that research like really come out? Is it causal? Like, because there's always been this really strong association, but does it in fact improve yeah. mood outcomes or is it that people who exercise generally already have like pretty good mood? Um, you know, and that's, that's why that there's that association.
4: Yeah, so we we do have causal evidence. I mean, we've got evidence now from Mendelian randomisation studies that I'm not a geneticist and there'll be people on this that will understand that far better than I do. But there mm. there is, you know, we have this huge body of evidence now mm. looking at the link between physical activity and, and mental health, whether that's mm. depression, anxiety, PTSD, schizophrenia. We've got a number of, of clinical trials. Um, we now have you know multiple meta-analyses, systematic reviews, umbrella reviews of reviews. The last one I was involved with reviewed you know over 30 meta-analyses with over 150 clinical trials. Mm. So I, I just think the, the evidence is very, very clear mm. um, regarding the causal impact of adding exercise to treatment, mm-hmm. but also regarding the, the role of physical activity in reducing the odds of developing whether it's depression or anxiety or or a mental health episode. Mm -hmm. So so the evidence is really clear. We need to shift this conversation away from does exercise help to Mm. how do we help particularly vulnerable, marginalised, disadvantaged people to actually engage. Yeah. So
1: how much exercise? Like when we say exercise, a lot of people just, you know, because I do some workshops, I'm like, it's actually a really important factor in well-being. And everybody just goes, oh, you know, yeah. how much exercise? Um, is it the 30 minutes a day that's recommended by GPs? Because I never think of it as 30 minutes by the time I choose my active gear, take off the makeup, pick the music, you know. So yeah. what's the what's the amount?
4: It's interesting that you raise that that figure that 30 minutes a day. Um so the World Health Organization has physical activity guidelines mm. and these recommend that adults engage in 150 minutes of physical activity per week, um, including some muscle strengthening activities which are which are separate. Now it's really important, and we've written about this that we actually, when we talk about mental health, basically forget those guidelines. Um and, and I'll tell you why, a couple of reasons. One, you know, they can First of all, they're based on cardiovascular outcomes, really. So essentially, epidemiologists looking at mortality associated with cardiovascular disease. I mean, they have brought mental health into the recent updates, but it's still, they're based on, you know, they're not made around mental health. Mm -hmm. Now, if we looked at, if we were writing physical activity guidelines for mental health and we were reflecting the evidence, we would simply say something is better than nothing. Mm -hmm. If you're doing something, try and do a little bit more. We know that, you know, even small bouts of activity, if we take someone who's really unwell, um, they manage to get up out of bed you know walk five minutes and come back to bed that's a start and that can have an impact on how we feel if they get out of bed and do 10 push-ups that can have an impact on how they feel so the guidelines are just that they're guidelines mm. but I'd essentially throw them out don't worry about it and think about where is the person that you're working with in front of you where are they at and how can we start getting them engaged in an activity they enjoy and that's again one of the most crucial parts
1: yeah Caroline, you've had this experience, right, the yep. lived experience of how exercise has really helped you with your mental health and especially after addiction. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey?
2: Yeah, so for me, like, I mean, I grew up um, playing sport. I lived in country Victoria, so sport was always part of my life.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: um my sister was actually the sports star of the family mm-hmm. um but I always did it so I would I had the experience of um sexual abuse at, up until 17 um so then that's when I found alcohol and mm-hmm. that was more about just managing my emotions and mm-hmm. everything else that went with that um so I still did sport throughout that period of time of addiction mm-hmm. you know and drugs and alcohol I was high functioning as they say mm. um, I you know I don't know that that is really a good classification for people because you're not really outwardly highly functioning but inside mm. it's a completely different story mm. um so when I did get I did six months residential rehab mm. um, and then from there I was doing AA meetings and I took up running just to fill in time at, and, and really that's what it was um my son was seven. I was a single mum as well. And what I found after I started walking was that I always felt better after an hour walk or run than I did going to an AA meeting. Ah. So I started going, hmm, would I go spend an hour here? You know, and as I got busy, as I was getting sober, I got busier with work and study. So my time became limited. Mm. So I started going, well, I I feel better yeah. doing exercise than I do going to AA, which for me I found a bit depressing, to be honest. Um, It was good at the time, but it wasn't working for me. And that's when I just sort of started progressing with exercise to a point where even when my son son would literally say to me when I was like all stressed, hey, mum, why don't you go for a run? (laughs) Um, So even he would see the difference between the me before exercise Mm -hmm. and the me after exercise and I could feel it like as I'm running you know um and I know since then like with you know I've I've pushed it further with triathlons and I had incredible anxiety Mm -hmm. like to the point I would be in tears three minutes before a race hysterical yeah um but would push through that and then always finish going oh my god that was the best thing since sliced bread yeah yeah um so and, you know, as I've got in the fitness industry and stuff like that, I'm sure we'll talk about further, you know, mm. it's, it's a theme that I hear time and time again with people who exercise, um, mm. that just that small amount of movement mm. changes their state.
3: Yeah.
1: That's
2: um, so consistent
1: with what Simon's is recommending. Yeah, everything well, Simon
2: said there, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and like I said, just, you know, I'll tell some clients, I said, just go for a walk around the block, walk out to your letterbox. That can be enough to just shift that little state that you're in. Yeah. Um, so, and Caroline, you know, what's really crucial
1: here that you talked about was that you actually, when you started running, um you know when you were going through yeah um (laughs) you noticed you you noticed like your mood like shifting at the end of it you start to like and and that sounds like it's critical alex you know we were talking like you know maybe we're gonna shift gear now and talk about as a psychologist how do we what are some of the things we need to put in place in terms of encouraging people to exercise right is it that we actually have to get them to track their mood before and after as well
5: well, I think uh, I think there's many different ways towards increasing exercise for mm-hmm. people. And I, I think,, uh, yes, like you said there, um trying to help the person actually create a concept of exercise where they think of it as something that improves their mood or something that contributes something to their life
3: mm-hmm.
5: um can be the first step. And that might be being very explicit and saying, Well, think about how you felt before and think about how you felt after exercising, even a simple activity, and uh, come back with that data. We can talk about it in session. But -hmm. it can also be trying to uh, go a little bit less structured by having them try and recall what they felt after exercising or what they liked about exercising in the past. So it's really trying to create that association in people's minds.
1: Yeah, yeah.
5: But, um, yeah, it, uh, I, I guess uh, otherwise there's, there's several other things that need to be addressed before someone can start exercising uh, as well. I don't know if you want me to go into those yeah, now. But please
3: yeah, please do. Yeah, okay.
5: Right, I'll keep talking. Please interrupt people. Um, <laughs> So I think another thing that's really helpful is to keep an open mind as to what constitutes exercise. And I think this goes directly to what Simon was saying earlier about um, not having too strict an idea of what you should and shouldn't be doing. Just start off with anything, whether it's a walk or a bike ride. Oh. Um, the other thing is to really keep in mind that people have, like you were saying, we're talking about the soccer and people getting injured earlier, oh. um, Carol, is uh, people have different health Uh, Levels, different injuries that they have to keep in mind as well. So not pushing too hard, but being flexible around that is important. Um, Otherwise, I think dealing with actual bad experiences around exercise in the past, like anxiety about showing your body in public or making a mistake in front of people can be important to keep in mind. Um, And then finally, and this is very important often, I think neglected is that we live in a society where uh, people are increasingly time, resource and energy poor. And saying to someone, just go out and exercise or go out and do this doesn't really factor in all the other demands that people have in their lives that they have to then shift or rearrange to be able to do so. And that's that's both an issue within the, within the therapy session, but it's also kind of a bit of a societal issue, I think
2: hmm mm, absolutely yeah. Were you gonna I'll just me? touch on that though because yeah. like I do I also do business coaching for a global company mm. and it's a very holistic model and you know I've got like like highly stressed entrepreneurs and business right. owners mm. but I when I'm coaching them I am like 100% passionate that they make that wellness side of their business and their mm. personal life an absolute priority mm. and through COVID coaching them do you know what that was crucial to the ones who got through COVID, even if their businesses were falling apart a bit, Mm. having that wellness Mm. and that exercise component really helped them stay in business. That's terrific. As well, yeah. Now, we've got a question here um,
1: from Fran, which is just wondering what you think of over-exercising and the high pressure that some um, for some young people in sports. Thank you. So I was wondering if anybody wants to have a go at taking yeah. that question. It's really interesting when I um, when I see some young people who have really been pushed in elite sports um, and then in adulthood, there's this reluctance sometimes to get back into it because it's associated with such high expectation. Do you find that sometimes, Alex?
5: Uh, I I would say I haven't really seen too many people that have that very uh, you know clear cut uh, uh, high elite sports background. But I I would I would say that the the first thing that comes to mind is burnout and mm-hmm. maybe having had that experience of being burned out within a sport when you're young or in your teens, all the sacrifices that go into that. Uh, again, the association that that would then create, which you might. Go back to when you see a therapist, and they say, "Well, what? What about you try something you did when you were younger?" Uh, it's going to be very hard to go back to doing that. I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, Simon, are there some uh, some people who have an advantage in implementing exercise? Have you found that in any of your research? Were there are certain groups that just are just more open, and then maybe some groups that are less open to exercise?
4: Yeah, I mean, it sort of links to what we've been. Just saying, but one of the, I mean, one of the really interesting studies in recent years has been has showed that your experience with sport or PE during school uh, significantly impacts your physical activity habits later in life. Which goes to what uh, Alex was saying about if you've had a horrible experience at school, if you were picked last, if you didn't feel that you could contribute, if you had a sick note and managed to to sit out every PE class. Um, it's unlikely you're going to be a lifelong exerciser down the track. So I think clinically when we're working with people, it's really important that we try to understand their exercise history Mm. um, because that has a big impact on the sort of advice that we should be providing. Um, And there was another comment just about the the access people have to time Mm. as a factor, and that's a really important thing. Another aspect is poverty and the resources that people have available. Um, You know, leisure time... Physical activity, which we know is the the one that's associated with mental health benefits, it's a privilege. It's a class privilege.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, you've got to be, you know, have the social capital, the financial resources, the childcare, live in a safe environment where you can walk outside, have access to walking shoes, and these are all factors that we don't consider enough with physical activity promotion that are actually so important as well.
1: yep absolutely. Um, what about? Oh, before you move on, I'm just going to say I was the one who was always picked last at sports. Mm-hmm. And I'm, like, quite old now, and I play on a soccer team because I know this research, and it's so important. It's completely persuaded me to get back into sports late in life because it's so associated with mood.
4: What persuaded you, Carol? What made you
1: Um, do? I was looking at some of the RCTs, and I also noticed, like, Caroline, you know, the mood going up, it didn't matter what I was doing at soccer, even when I was losing, it was just nice after a run. And then there's that social element as well. But I have found that a lot of people, exactly what you're talking about, there's this barrier, oh, I'm not going to be good at soccer, or I'm not going to be good at netball. So I don't, like, I don't want to do it. And I've always taken it as an approach of, well, you know, we're never going to be in the Premier League, but if we can get 10,000 to 15,000 steps out on Sunday, what an achievement, right? That in itself is like a really nice benchmark. And that's kind of how I approach it with clients as well as like, what is kind of your goal going into this? If your goal is to be good at soccer, then that's going to be really tough. But if your goal is to get those steps out, wow, achievable on that day.
4: So, there's there's yeah. just a really important piece of research I'd like to just mention here that's mm. from humanitarian context, which mm. that there's a lot of relevance. Um, but it essentially was a study with child soldiers where they ran a, a football intervention. Mm. Um, the mental health outcomes for the participants got worse. Mm. And when you looked at what actually happened, it was the coaching. Ah. And it was the coaching, screaming and yelling at children um, to put this pressure on to win. And so it's really important when we think about the mental health benefits and we think about physical activity or structured sport Mm. that we prioritize participation over competition Mm. if we're trying to get the mental health benefits and I can't stress that enough how important that is.
1: Absolutely and you know it just relates back to this question of you know um, young people and the pressure they feel in sport and maybe that actually turns them off um, physical activity Um, but we've talked about Uh, patients and clients and people, but are there health professional features um, that affect how likely we, psychs and coaches, are likely to prescribe sport, Simon?
3: Yes,
4: is the short answer. We've got some good data from here in Australia that's now been replicated in the Netherlands, uh, also in India more recently, and we Mm -hmm. don't quite have the results, but the data has been collected Health professionals that are more active themselves and that uh, engage in physical activity are far more likely to recommend that to their the, their patients or clients. Mm. Um, and I think it, it makes a lot of sense when we think about it because if someone genuinely believes in something and they know the reasons why, then they're far more likely to prioritise that. Um, we did a project here at Southeast Sydney Local Health District with 200 mental health professionals where we provided a four-week intervention. Um, where we actually focused on their lifestyle, their physical activity, their nutrition, sleep, those sorts of factors. What we found afterwards was that it significantly improved their their knowledge of those interventions, but also their confidence and their attitudes around how they can work with these interventions. Um, I think it's really important that we don't just assume that mental health professionals have the, the skills, knowledge, or confidence to be actually delivering these interventions. In the same way, we shouldn't expect the physical health workforce, physical therapists, exercise physiologists, dieticians to have the knowledge working in mental health it's actually very clear that we need that integration and training at the university level Um, so yes health professionals need to be active start with yourselves before we before we recommend to patients
1: I was just suggesting to an um, uh, academic um, at one of the universities that we need to have like a football team for as part of the unit um, requirement, along with all the vivas and all the things we have to. challenge that we have to be part of a team sport. <laughs> Alex, can please? I? Yeah,
5: I just add uh, just an anecdotal uh, uh, evidence to to what you just said. So, and I think you're right that um, I mean, personally as a clinician, I, I have always been active. Uh, um, and I think that's obviously shaped my interest in including that in therapy. But uh, I would also say that uh, you're right in the science bit as well. I, I think um, over the last six and a half years of practicing, uh, it's it's become more clear in my mind as something I want to incorporate in therapy and that's because of some experiences where I've, for example, uh, sat in on a lecture. There was one given by a, a, a professor uh, of medicine, and one of the things that stuck with me was that she she said that if there was one pill we could prescribe, it would be me- it would be exercise. Like if that was pill yeah. format, and we could just give that to people, that would be just the panacea, basically. And after hearing that, and then going off and actually just double checking by reading some research and seeing that. Uh, For example, where I was working at the time in the older person's mental health field, that that does have big impacts on mental health and depression. Um, I I was much more motivated to use it uh, because I could see that it was evidence-based. And then finally, I would add that just tracking clients with, for example, DAS scores and seeing what happens before and after they start exercising Mm -hmm. itself has just been my own pre and post motivation to incorporate it.
1: So, Alex, you know, I I also often try to incorporate exercise as well when I'm working with clients, but sometimes I get really stuck. What are some of your kind of strategies for getting clients to even start thinking about incorporating some exercise as one of the first line um, for intervention?
5: I I think uh, the the most important thing is to personalise it, both what you suggest potentially, or what you developed uh, as an initial exercise uh, idea. But even the way that you present it, I think, would be uh, personalized to the person. Some people, you might have one session where you have uh, focus on behavioral activation and you go through, you make a plan, it's good, then let's go and execute. And hopefully they do. Whereas other times, maybe you have to actually raise it a few times, let it trickle into people's minds that maybe this is something that could help. Um, and in 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 terms of the specific activity, uh, I think it, it should just be as open as possible. For some, it would be walking around the block or even just walking to the front step and sitting there and enjoying a nice day. Whereas for others, it'd be um, rediscovering some childhood activity that they used to play, but maybe doing it now in like a social context uh, like yourself. Um, another thing is what um, Simon said earlier about Less is more. Less is definitely more. Uh, lower your expectations. I know this sounds a bit uh, defeatist, but the important thing about that is that you want to think, or you want them to think, what is the level at which I can do this now? That means that I will also do it next, the next day and the next day after that. So it becomes a habit as opposed to one week of burning yourself out, doing something intense. Yeah.
1: What about you, Caroline? What are yeah. some of your tips? Because you as a work in this space in terms of motivating people to, to get into exercise.
2: Um, so for me, like when I got into, like opened my gym, got my PT, I went in with rose-coloured glasses about the fitness industry and I to say I was bitterly disappointed would be an absolute understatement.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and what I found was an industry that's actually full of mental illness. There's body image, there's judgment, there's, again, as we've talked about, you know, what's the outcome for people? Because everyone's prescribed these intense programs and diets and all they need is a little bit of movement. Mm. So, you know, and I work mostly with middle-aged women who have just been so put off by the industry they've had pts who want them to vomit that, you know the usual oh you haven't worked hard enough unless you've thrown up really um, you know and yell at them that and oh yeah like it took me a while to like take a step back and go oh my god what is all this you know mm. so i guess what i've developed through my gym and with with my women is a they actually came for the social side mm. so i run this amazing boot camp we all get there they do whatever exercises they want. They actually work quite hard because they're having fun. Mm. Um, And then we make sure we have coffee afterwards and a chat. But it, it's so much the social. It's so much yeah, what you said, what everyone's saying, just do what you can. You mm. know, if your goal is just to improve your mental health and be a little bit healthier living, mm. then you don't need all these extreme programs. And, you know, God forbid if I report another two-week shred, you know, all that stuff. It's so. Difficult, and I think, like as clinicians, giving prescribing people to go to the gym for exercise, you know, isn't necessarily the answer because it doesn't. It's not going to help someone who's got anxiety mm-hmm. or depression to go in there and feel uncomfortable. Because mm-hmm. most of the women that come to my gym, and I've made it so it's got like nice, you know, um, flower walls, and you know, it, it's not like your traditional gym because that's what I wanted to get away from. So, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely, it's got to be more about people as individuals and what they really want you know and i went down the same track personally with my triathlon
3: Mm.
2: and burnt burnt out because Mm. i was on a really strict coaching program Mm. and like literally then couldn't run Mm. and i had to go back to the thing that got me back on track and i actually had my best race ever within a week was i actually went back to why am i doing this Mm. and i'm not i'm actually not competitive I did it because it helped my mental health yep. and all of a sudden I got caught up in all that competition and having to achieve and being pushed and it just about destroyed my mental health mm. and I realised and that's when I really put more focus on for people doing exercise they enjoy first off. Like mm. if you don't like running, don't run. If you don't mm. like swimming, don't swim.
3: Mm.
2: Um, you know, and for me exercise can be going out and sitting under a tree. If that's what works for you, that's movement enough for you. So, yeah, definitely what Alex was saying about being individualised with the Mm. programs and not thinking that the, uh, you shouldn't say it, but not thinking that the fitness industry is actually going to help a lot of the times. It is getting better and a lot more gyms are being a lot more holistic.
3: Mm.
2: However, it's um, fraught with danger for anyone who suffers any type of mental illness. Yeah, so I'm going to throw this out
1: there. This is not one of our questions, but do you think exercise has a bit of a branding problem? Like, has it been hijacked by lifestyle gurus? Simon's going to jump in here.
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, hijack hijack is a great word. I mean, the the idea of exercise has been hijacked by an industry. I mean, I would reframe that, and let's think about it. Like, we have a universal right to health. Yeah, so everyone has the right to health. The evidence and science is very clear that movement and not exercise movement is mm. critical for mental and physical health. Mm. So if we then think of it in those lens, then how do we actually support people to engage and participate? Gyms, you can often say commercial gyms is, is can be toxic environments. Yep. And Caroline, you, like what you're talking about is amazing, but I would frame what you're saying through two words, one, cultural safety, and mm. two, psychological safety. Yep. And gyms typically at the moment, so commercial gyms, do not provide culturally or Um, psychologically safe environments for people that may be experiencing challenges with their mental health. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the focus on aesthetics is really challenging. Um, We've got good data. The the number one reason people want to start exercising is they want to lose weight, and that includes people with mental illness, including schizophrenia. We've got good data on this. Now, that's really problematic because the evidence around exercise and weight loss is actually very clear that exercise is not an effective strategy to losing weight in the absence of dietary change. If you want to change, if you want to lose weight, focus on your diet. If you want to improve things like how you feel, how you sleep, focus on exercise. But we've got this around the wrong way. You go to a gym and the first thing they do is they measure your weight. No, why can't they ask you how you feel? How did you sleep? The more people we have like Caroline saying, you know, I'm here, I'm exercising because of how it makes me feel, not because of how it makes me look is, is critically important.
2: Yeah, and that—that that, like we, I always use that with uh, my clients. I say, "Well, how do you feel? I want you to look at yourself now and say you feel okay, mm-hmm. you know." And you know, I'm a big believer when when people start feeling good about themselves, they're going to make healthier choices when it comes to exercise and diets. Mm. Well, I won't say I hate—I don't even like the word diets. Um, I love my chocolate. I love all those foods. There's no such thing as bad food. So there's so much cultural shift around all of that that puts pressure, so much pressure on people, and it's not necessary to be healthy and have to prescribe to all of that stuff.
1: So, Simon, you know, from your research perspective, how do we get people with mental health challenges exercising? Because we've heard from Alex's perspective in terms of clinical practice, but what, what does some of the research say?
4: Yeah, so it it depends on the individual. It depends on things like diagnosis, for example. Mm -hmm. And so the level of the more severe someone's symptoms, or the more severe their illness, Mm -hmm. the more intensive the support they're going to need. It's the same as physical health, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, For some people, advice may be enough.
3: Mm -hmm.
4: For most, it's unlikely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we know that. So we've got very clear data from the general population, not mental health focused. Mm -hmm. Um, The best example is the diabetes prevention program published in the New England Journal, it's very clear the steps in that that are associated with effective lifestyle intervention. Now, unfortunately, in most mental health settings, overwhelmingly, the level of support that we provide for lifestyle change is insufficient.
3: Mm-hmm. And
4: it's not a surprise it doesn't do anything because the based on what the evidence tells us, we're not providing the adequate level of support to help people. Now, if we take mental health out of the picture and just think about the general population, it's hard to get people moving. If you've got these habits, you've got your routine, your lifestyle, you've had your, you know, for 20, 30, 40 years, it's hard to change that. Simply telling someone, hey, you need to do some more exercise doesn't work. Mm. Now, some of the principles from the DPP, and we wrote about this in a Lancet commission in 2019 on protecting the physical health of people with mental illness, Um, and I can send all that through, Mm. but essentially there are factors associated with better outcomes and better adherence, one of them is having a, a, a trained, so a university qualified health practitioner, and that's a, a dietitian, a physical therapist, or an exercise physiologist. So these are health professionals, and here in Australia there are Medicare rebates, mm-hmm. but these are health professionals trained in providing that, those interventions. So that's mm-hmm. one factor that we know from the evidence that's associated with lower dropouts. Mm-hmm. Foo is a combination of individual and group-based sessions. So you mentioned your, your soccer game.
3: Mm-hmm. For
4: some people, turning up to that initially is going to be really difficult. Yep. and so what that they may need is that one-on-one support first mm. to hold your hand and then go to the group and attend the group
3: mm.
4: and then what we also know is their attendance will drop off and then they may need some more one-on-one support to re-engage mm. so we need that combination of both just having one we miss out on that social interaction mm. that as you spoke about is so important
3: mm-hmm.
4: um so they're some of the, the key factors we, we have a real missed opportunity here in australia at the moment we have one of the best referral pathways in the world to access um practitioners so health professionals covered under medicare to to help provide this support referral rates are about two percent coming out of general practice so there's a scheme there that is just entirely underutilised, but it's available and we need that integration between uh, mental health professionals and the physical health professionals working together we know that co-location of services particularly inpatient and community mental health services also makes a big difference
1: are there any free programs, Simon? Because I always hear you know this is really expensive. And maybe it is the branding because some clients are like, well, I have to go get a personal trainer. I'm like, you don't need a personal. Yep. Trainer. There are
4: some there are some great free programs. Um, so there are exercise physiologists that will bulk bill, and that's covered mm-hmm. under Medicare.
3: Yep. Um,
4: one example of a community-based program we've done a lot of research with is called Live Life Get Active, and they're in, in a number of LGAs across Australia, they're free community-based programs mm-hmm. for nutrition and physical activity support. There's more and more of these services coming up, um, but they do exist and they, they are out there. We need more, but there are some available. We just know that getting providers to refer is a bit of a challenge at the moment.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, hopefully that answers some of Lorena's question. I'm just going to read it out loud to make sure we, we did cover it because I did ask about free program. What if people can't afford the help of those health professionals, you know, a single parent that have children and nobody to care yeah. for them and they don't have any time? What are some of your suggestions for that? Yeah,
4: it's it's tricky. Oh,
2: sorry, you please you go. On. Well, I was just going to say with that because, like, I was a single mum, mm. and so that was. And the best thing I did was get it whenever my child was involved in sport or doing something. Whether it was, I would walk around the football field. So use the time when your children are involved. So you're role modelling to them. And it's, again, that's how I ended up doing triathlon because I got sick. I, I thought I'm not going to wait around for my son while he does stuff, so what can I do, and yep. just got involved. Yep. Um, and also same with Surf Lifesaving, it was like when you get your children involved, just do do what they're doing, yeah. you know, as as part of that. Um, and another really good one which I'm just passionate about is Park Run. Right. Park well, Run is an amazing community, uh-huh. and I think, again, it's the social side of that and i would say you know 70 percent of the people who do park run do it for their mental health yeah how do people get involved in park do they just google it do yeah they just, just google it there's logo there's ones they're all over over the world but there's yeah. so many in australia now it's free um you know sometimes you might you know like you said have a friend that goes with you the first time because it can be a bit daunting because they can mm. be quite large mm. but everyone i know who's gone to it stays with it and you can walk you can run there's no pressure whatsoever lovely
1: alex what's your favorite kind of exercise to get someone started on you know just to ease them into it from a mental health perspective
5: oh uh, to ease them in and actually just a good exercise for various reasons is uh walking and after walking i think uh it's a bit more various maybe For some, it's a run walk. I like to recommend that people do a run walk or a walk walk and then a run walk. You know, something that's just less is more.
3: Mm. Um,
5: But yeah, I think that's um, that's kind of what I'd go to usually: a walk um, in a nice area.
3: Yeah, Yeah.
1: and I've always found that such a barrier when you come across clients who. I'm really, I'm going to get back into exercise. And then they go for this massive run and then they're mm-hmm. sore afterwards. And then it just puts them off because it's like three days of being in pain and then going, well, I can't do this. I'm so unfit, right? Such a demotivator. I really love this idea that it's a walk first and then a walking you can put in a run nobody's watching you right no one's saying oh no you didn't do 10 minutes of running you mixed it up with some walking nobody's watching you you can just stop when you're getting a bit tired and that's really nice too
2: yeah I literally that's how I started walk light post to light post jog to the next light post Mm. walk to the next light light post yeah and that's why I say to my clients just do what you can Anything, you know, that, that motto, anything is better than nothing.
1: Yeah. And as a parent, can I just recommend things like, because I, I, I you know, understand that with kids and then with financial barriers, it can be really hard, but actually kids are so good for getting you moving as mm. well, right? They love being chased, you know, just playing a really like rigorous game of hide and seek, you know, it's moving as well and it mm. integrates play and sometimes I've just forgotten a little bit about that play aspect, you know, in adulthood. Um, now, we've got another question here from Catherine. I don't know if anybody can answer this one. Um, what about males with body dysmorphia who are slaves to their gym routine? So are there populations where you go, oh, gosh, I would not be recommending exercise <laughs> to this group?
2: No one wants to take that yeah. one. <laughs> um, I, no, I think that goes back to what the discussion was about the mm. gym culture mm. as well um, because that's where it's going to come from. Yeah, obviously, that. Obviously, and you guys would be able to answer that better, that there's more behind it than the exercise that needs to be well, dealt with,
5: yeah. I think exactly. It speaks to just broader themes in our society. I think uh, I think you alluded to it earlier, Simon, uh, the, by saying this idea of a missed opportunity. Maybe um, we are kind of missing a lot of opportunities for helping people, whether it's trying to shift um, attitudes within specific populations like uh, young males or even um just in general, this idea that's that exercise has to have to ha- has to have this competitive element. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think uh, a, 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 an issue like that male body dysmorphia is is a, is a, a societal thing. it's it's something that's grown over the last few decades where you see people uh, on TV and in movies increasingly muscular and sending that uh, that message uh, to young males that they then adopt. So I, I think. It is hard from that perspective because you have to shift something gigantic. Um, from a clinical perspective, um, I think that a dysmorphia is a diagnosis, and there would be uh, cognitive behavioral approaches designed for that specific population, even manualized ones. So I'd probably, if I was faced with a, a, cl- a client that had that issue, I'd probably personally refer on. But if if you're kind of not able to refer on or whatever, I'd probably try and find an intervention manual that's been because it's not a new it's not a new issue anymore it's it's a known problem clinically dysmorphia
1: absolutely thanks for that alex um i like this question actually um where would you recommend someone in the general population start if they are challenged with obesity? And absolutely right. Um this idea of I think people watching us and how we look in our body and getting exercise, um, is a real barrier. Simon, what do you think? What
4: what would you yeah, recommend? I mean I would start by not focusing on the obesity. So um, obviously we've, we've got to find a program that is comfortable and supports that person and is safe, and that's the most important thing. Um, obesity is associated with a range of, of challenges regarding exercise, so safety is a key thing. Um, but not focusing on the obesity in terms of or weight loss as the outcome associated with the exercise is the, the thing that I'd be doing. You know, when I was working clinically we actually I, I didn't measure weight it just wasn't an outcome that i was interested in
3: okay.
4: um associated with the exercise the dietitian we worked with they measured weight the endocrinologist was interested in the weight that's great but from the exercise perspective i wasn't um the other thing that we really you know we we haven't touched on but is really important and the evidence is there is around strength training as an alternative to aerobic exercise and um, we have less data but it's as strong as aerobic exercise but the only reason it's not we don't have as much evidence. is based on how difficult it is running interventions with strength training. You need equipment, you need trained professionals, whereas you just need walking, and you can look at a walking intervention. Um, but strength training is a really underutilized strategy. Um, it's, it's also in terms of obesity and diabetes treatment. We know that insulin resistance strength training is one of the best things we can do. Um, so there's a double whammy there, but but, you know, for a lot of um, people that have never had experience with muscle building exercises or resistance exercises, we're not talking about lifting heavy weights in a gym, we're using your body weight or using elastic bands traditionally used for rehabilitation. There's some really great programs. Um but again, you know, I, I really just stress the idea that there are referral pathways to qualified practitioners that can that can provide support. We can't expect that everyone can can do these things on our own
2: absolutely and so. totally agree that's my passion um strength training and you know from from women who have been brought up that they're only allowed to do cardio or they'll end up like big muscly men that, again it's another cultural change but the benefits are, you know for weight loss is massive bone density metabolism is all of that
4: From from a mental health perspective, we're also doing a lot of work now looking at women who have experienced sexual violence um, and looking at the impact of of trauma and and resistance training. And that was my original original PhD work. We looked at at strength training. So there's some good evidence there. And also as an engagement strategy, if you've got people that are are not wanting to exercise or they've got negative views Mm. of exercise or heart rate response to exercise, because that's something to consider, particularly with anxiety. Strength training doesn't have the same impact on heart rate. You don't get the same response, so you don't. It's not the same trigger for people. Um, So there's lots of reasons why it can be useful.
2: I know, even like from the women that do have started strength training, and they may never have done that before. There's a lot of that they feel empowered by strength training, so that that has that mental connection with it on how that and emotional connection of just feeling stronger.
3: Mm.
1: It's a lovely way to put it, Caroline. Um, we've got a question from Abo in here. Can we run through some of the referral pathways to exercise physiologists? Um, it sounds like it is Medicare covered. Is that right, Simon?
4: Sure, yeah, through general practice. So it's under the – it used to be the Enhanced Primary Care Plan. I'm not sure mm. what a Complex Chronic Disease Management Plan now. Sorry, it's been a while since I've been involved Yeah, in that, I think so you're right. correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, gee, through through Medicare, there's up to five sessions in a calendar year for someone with a, a chronic disease. Now, that can include obesity, for example, mm-hmm. is considered. Um, now, there has been people confused about this in the past, but mental, you know, I've, I've heard practitioners say, no, I can't refer to a dietitian or an EP for a primary mental health condition. And that's just not true because mental health is a condition, it is a chronic condition. So, you absolutely can write a care plan for a dietitian or an exercise physiologist. For a primary issue of mental health and the evidence is there for both dietetics and and exercise. They often go hand in hand. So there's five sessions in a calendar year. Um yeah. That is fantastic
1: to know. Um and hopefully all the practitioners listening today are gonna start investigating for some of the clients. I know you you guys are out there already thinking about a few clients that you could Possibly put onto this referral pathway. So, what is one? So, let's do a little bit of a whip around as we head towards the end of um, our our uh, podcast tonight. What's one takeaway tip? Because most of our audience tonight, they're cl- clinicians, you know, hoping to integrate more exercise into their interventions for patients and clients what would be one takeaway from tonight's podcast, um, that you might, you know, try, try to, um, integrate, um, Alex, what do you think was the one, one takeaway message you'd give to clinicians tonight?
5: Oh, uh, so uh, I guess, uh, again, sorry, it's my own personal experience. I think that, um, uh, if, if you want to start, uh, integrating exercise more in your intervention, maybe the first place is to start thinking about why exercise is important to you, what you value about exercise, what you like and what you don't like. And that can then motivate a sentiment that you might carry on into your private practice that is a bit more exercise uh, encouraging. That's what I would say.
1: Absolutely. That's actually a really great tip just to start with ourselves and what it is we value about exercise. Caroline, what about you? Because you are the exercise guru. You've been like in this industry of getting people to really um, engage in exercise for their well-being. What's your tip to the clinicians Um, out there?
2: Definitely. If you want it to be sustainable, it's got to be fun
1: and it's got to be enjoyable.
2: Yeah. Um, And, and creating it, you know, which goes against everything our society seems to do at the moment, is it's long-term, and that's mm-hmm. why you don't have to make any massive changes, just small, chip away, you know, chip away and do that 500-metre walk, mm-hmm. you know, for a week. Then yeah. up up it if you like it or try yeah. something else. But, yeah, definitely yeah. have fun. Yeah. Make it enjoyable. Yeah. And, and, and you know, start feeling better about yourself, to make yourself feel better about yourself because it, it will all start from how you feel about yourself. So focus on you and how you feel, not all the aesthetic stuff that goes yeah. with
1: you. Caroline, you to mentioned something really important, which is that I sometimes find people get really stuck in the same exercise and they don't feel like they can change. Yeah. And you're saying sometimes you can mix it up okay. a little bit and, and take up something different.
2: I don't think my clients have done the same boot camp once. <laughs> <laughs> i think that's partly because i get bored so like i do a little bit of absolutely everything um yeah. because then i don't get bored and you know if i'm fear, i've always have. oh i feel like this today so mm. i'll go do that
1: yeah. yeah i've i've late in life started watching netball because one of my children plays and turned to the mom recently because they were in the grand final so exciting they've won by a point um and i turned okay. to her mom and i said Is it too late for us to start netball?
2: (laughs) I I started triathlon at 47.
1: There you go. Very inspirational. Right. So, yeah, maybe I will. Maybe next time you see me, I'll be in like a netball dress for the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Simon, what about you? What's some takeaway for clinicians Mm. looking to maybe clinicians who's never really thought much about, you know, exercise? Mm. And now, how do I start to integrate it into my practice?
4: I've got two, but firstly, I mean, Carolyn, I just love the sound of your gym. I want to come and check it out. So that's a topic after this. Um, yeah. I'd love to come and come and see it. My my takeaway one, I mean, you mentioned enjoyment, which is so important, but mine is probably about referral pathways and having those connections because it's you know the, the psychologist can do the you know some amazing work actually getting someone to the point when they're they're ready to do something. So having a network of professionals around you that you can then refer that person to. It just means that there's there's ongoing support, and I think we know how important that is. So that's probably the takeaway that I would have, you know, look at who the local mm. professionals are in your area that you can refer to and have a, a trusting relationship with them. You know, the one thing that you could do, often to do training, you know, for them and their staff, and likewise they can run some training for you around physical activity and sport. And we're doing a lot of that, um, you know, in different levels at the moment. The the other thing that I would just say, this is a bit radical and it's not appropriate to everyone, um. But based on some work that's happening at the moment, does talking therapy always have to be sedentary? Mm-hmm. And we're seeing good examples around the world where the answer is no. And there's actually some good data coming out around things like BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor associated with, with, with cycling um, on a stationary bike, exposure therapy happening, you know, simultaneously or immediately before or after. So there's there's things that we can get creative about redefining and rethinking what a traditional mental health treatment actually looks like and what it involves.
1: Yeah. Do you know one of my favourite things during lockdown, Simon, was that because I couldn't see my clients face-to-face and on telehealth, I used to um, put them on zoom and then I put them in my back pocket with my earphone and I made them go for a walk. it was just lovely, like somewhere quiet, but you know, this is a reminder you have to maintain confidentiality, but it was an excuse for me to make them go for a walk on the phone. And they could hear me huffing and puffing as I was going up the hill. I'm like, why are you not out? Are you sure you're out? So, you know, that's such a great idea to get it, like take therapy outside of the room and start to get moving a little bit. So I'm going to share my screen again, um, and I do have to apologize um, because I've only got one screen tonight. Usually I have two screens, um, but we want to remind everyone of this online tool, um, which is Head to Health and Being Active, um, where there's lots of patient information um, around getting active. Um, Simon, do you have anything else to add to this one? Um, Because that's the information I have regarding this
4: particular slide. Other resources I'd look at would be Exercise Right. Um, so that's a a great website that's hosted by exercise sports science australia but it's information on exercise and health or or or, and also diseases written by health professionals so it's it's reputable um, for practitioners and for the community
1: so that's called exercise right is that right
4: exercise right is the yeah if you search for that so it's hosted by exercise sports science australia fantastic
1: um, at the Black Dog Institute, we have a number of resources for you. Um, the big one at the moment is the Essential um, Network for Health Professionals. And it's really set up to um, provide our health professionals who've really worn quite a lot of the burden during COVID and the pandemic, um, you know, in terms of supporting other people. And so this particular initiative is just designed for health professionals. You do not need a referral do not even need to um, give us any Medicare details. Um, You know, the the service is there to um, support health professionals who are maybe experiencing some challenge with their well-being. So do check us out. It's on the Black Dog Institute. Um, And we have lots of other things going on at the Black Dog Institute. I was actually checking out some of the workshops. Um, Some of them I host, some of them I want to attend. Uh, So we have lots of health professional training at the moment, um, different podcasts um, for health professionals and workplace podcast as well um, and not to forget you know our um, fantastic initiative which is my compass right this online program for mental health um, and you can follow us on facebook and linkedin so um, so do do check out the resource because we'd love for you to use it it's really all about uptake because it's there a really big thank you to our amazing panel members i'm hoping that everyone's really after listening to this podcast motivated um to go out and start to think about integrating exercise find out more referring more to exercise physiologists and you know you simon you and i we're gonna go check out caroline's gym because i'm like you she's like she's got floral wallpapers it sounds like a dream i'm gonna (laughs) have to go hang out so do google caroline um and find out a little bit more about what she does because i'm definitely going to be doing that after this podcast thank you all alex simon and caroline so much for tonight's podcast. Um, And we look forward to seeing you next last Wednesday of the month on the 28th of September. All right. Good night, everyone.
0: Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.